We are continuing our series on discipleship, growing in the Lord, spiritual formation, all sorts of topics around that. Um, I'm kind of on a roll here. Uh, the, the most unpopular message to preach to American Christians, uh, according to Gallup poll, is uh, m- uh, anything on money, and I spent some time this spring talking about that. The second most unpopular topic is hell, and I spent two weeks, uh, two weeks ago talking about that. I imagine the third most popular, unpopular one has to do with death, dying to self, and that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Uh, so my ratings are plummeting, you know, but that's all right. I'm, I, you know, God rewards the labor, not the increase. And so this is really such an, a uh, crucial message. It is a, frankly, a sake between the eyes message. Uh, it's about dying to self. But it's absolutely the, 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 the linchpin of spiritual growth. Uh, let me read a couple of verses where Jesus socks some people between the eyes. Luke chapter 14, and I'll say a few words about this as I'm reading it. It says, Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And whereas a lot of uh, church planters and popularists today think that you should be striving to get large crowds, and that's a sign of success. Jesus seemed to be worried about it. So he saw these large crowds following him, and so he, he thought to himself, it seems, as I, I, gotta, I gotta shave this thing down a little bit here. Because Jesus was never interested in quantity. I mean, he wants to reach the whole world, but what he wants is quality, quality disciples. And so he says this. Now large crowds were traveling with him, so Jesus turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. (laughs) That ought to thin things out a little bit. And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That ought to thin it out a little bit more. Now, a, a, a few words of commentary here. When Jesus says you must hate your father, mother, brother, and sister, even life itself, you need to understand that in, in a Semitic idiom, in, in, in the Hebrew language of the day, um, they didn't have any exclamation points. And, and the way that you stated something emphatically was by stating it in its most uh, extreme form. It was hyperbole. And so when he says, you know, because Jesus commands us to love our mother and father, we're supposed to even love our enemies, so clearly we're not supposed to hate literally our mother and father and friends and whatever. But he's saying this. If you're going to follow me, you've got to know this. Your allegiance to me must dwarf in significance your allegiance to everything else. By comparison, it must be like, like hatred is to love. I, he will accept no competitors. You've got to lay it all on the line. And then he says, just to make it crystal clear, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Now we think of a cross like you wear on your neck, uh, a, a little trinket. Everyone wears them these days. But to uh, first century people, they knew what a cross was. They saw crosses every day of their life. This is where you executed criminals. It was a symbol of a, of a torturous death. And on the way to that death, the criminals had to, as Jesus did, carry their cross. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, it's going to mean death. Death to yourself. You're going to have to, uh, your whole time, be on your way to dying. And he says that because he wants to make sure that people just aren't following him for the tricks, for the miracles. He doesn't want a carnival. He wants a band of disciples, apprentices, who are in training for the kingdom. And then he says, for which of you intending to build a tower? He says, I'm la- here's why I'm laying all my cards on the table. Here's what, here's what the cost is. 
He says, which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? I'm telling you all this up front. No, no uh, soft sell here. Here's, here's what, what I'm asking for, everything. Now, if you want to come, you're welcome. Another spot Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 10, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Just store that, we'll come back to it. And then in Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all. Everyone say all. He sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because he wants to get the treasure. Okay, I'll come back to those verses in a little bit. I want to uh, uh, back into the message by kind of giving an overview once again. We're talking about discipleship, so it's important that we see the big picture here. Why is this an important thing? Several weeks ago, we talked about the goal. The goal for creation, the goal that God had when he started this whole project, and the goal of the church and the goal of discipleship ultimately is the kingdom of God, the dome in which God is king. And God's goal is to have the dome in which he is king, the king's dome, the kingdom, the dome in which God is king is to encompass all of reality. More specifically to us, it means this. Uh, the kingdom of God, when it has totally come, it's now in process of growing, but when it's totally arrived, will be that state of being where the love, the perfect love of the triune God comes to us, flows in us, and flows through us. Such that the way that you love God and the way you love yourself and the way you love your neighbor will perfectly mirror the love of the triune God. The Trinity will, as it were, be replicated. It's what I call the trinification of the cosmos. The whole, God's agenda is to be glorified, to have a mirror of the love that he is, and we are that mirror. So the goal is for the kingdom of God to be established. And one of the things that we'll be doing as we mirror who God is, is we'll be carrying out his, his will on earth as it is in heaven. This was always God's goal for human beings. We have a job to do. We are to, uh, uh, in his love, rule the world. We're to be his viceroys, his administrators. We are to be his hands and his feet, uh, his body here on earth. And when the, when the kingdom is finally set up, uh, that is, is, is what, what's going to be uh, the case. That, that'll be the state of affairs. That's what God's driving at. Now, there's three things, three steps, if you will, that are necessary to get there. First of all, as we said uh, several weeks ago, uh, th- there's a probation you go through. And the period of time that we are in, this world history, is a probationary epoch. It is the time in which we decide whether we'll be for or against the kingdom of God. Whether our hearts, in the innermost core of our being, whether we'll be people who are saying yes to, the, to, to God's love, coming to us, flowing in us and flowing through us, or whether we'll say no. Whether we want to be, as William Hensley said, a captain of our own ship, masters of our own fate. You call in your own shots. Will, will, will you orbit God, or are you going to make God and all of, orbit, uh, and all of reality orbit you? Uh, that's the fundamental decision that every person makes, and that determines whether or not this world period will be a time where you're being prepared for the kingdom of God or for the garbage heap outside the kingdom of God. The second thing that's going on in this stage of world history is formation, spiritual formation. Everybody, we said two weeks ago, is being spiritually formed. We are in the process of being solidified. 
Our characters are being solidified. We are, if you will, becoming real. This is sort of a prelude stage to reality. Reality is going to be when the kingdom of God is set up, but this is the preliminary stage to that because love must be chosen. And so we're in the process of becoming certain kinds of persons, persons who are either compatible with or incompatible with the kingdom of God. And every decision we make in some way affects, moves us forward in that process of spiritual formation. For the disciple, who's an apprentice of Jesus Christ, who's committed to, uh, to being in training uh, under Jesus Christ, this is the period of time where you work to, to bring all your thoughts and your character, your emotions, your life, your actions in line with God's will so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, in your mind as it is in heaven, in your body as it is in heaven, in your heart as it is in heaven. And, and so you're rendering your whole character compatible with the kingdom of God. It's also the time where we are in training to do what we will be doing throughout eternity, and that is reigning with Christ upon the earth, as it says in Revelations 5, uh, 11. Well, the goal is for us to reign with him upon the earth. And so er, all the experiences we go through here, if we'll work with God, he uses to further us, to refine us, to build us, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wants a bride who looks like Christ that will be reigning throughout eternity. So this is the period of, of Christian formation. The third thing that has to happen as, as, before we enter in, into the kingdom is judgment. The Bible speaks of a purging fire. Uh, a fire that will, uh, as the kingdom's growing now, the Lord will come and, and when it's of sufficient size, he'll set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And everything that's inconsistent with the kingdom will be purged. The, the, the main metaphor used for this, or one of the main metaphors, is fire. And the point of the metaphor is not about heat and pain. The point is about purifying. Everything that is inconsistent will be burned up, and everything that is consistent will be refined. It will be perfected. For people whose innermost being is not in line with God, they, in their probationary period, they said no to the Lord. Their whole existence is burned up. They're, they're, they're just, at least that's one of the main ways the Bible talks about it. They're like chaff thrown in the fire. There's nothing that passes through this fire. For believers, the core of your being, your spirit is consistent. You have said yes in the core of your being. But the question is, what else about you is now consistent with the kingdom of God? What have you built on that? Whatever is not consistent will be burned away. You see the first application of this judgment in Matthew 3, where it says that Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat, that's everyone who is consistent with the kingdom of God, into the granary. But the chaff, whatever is not wheat, whatever is inconsistent with, with his, his program, will be, uh, uh, he will burn with unquenchable fire. That just means you're not going to be able to put that fire out. Uh, the, the, the chaff is burned up. You see the second application of this fire as it applies to believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says the work of each builder will become visible. You can't measure it now. You really can't tell uh, where people are at. We sometimes think we can, but we can't. But on that day, the day of this purifying fire, the work of each builder will become visible for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire. How? Because everything that's inconsistent will be burned away and we'll see what kind of uh, uh, work is really there. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only through fire. And that's an expression that they use. It's kind of equivalent to uh, our expression by the skin of your teeth. 
uh, it, was, it, it came from the idea of someone's house burning down and they get out alive, but everything they had is, is lost. The point is this. When God's kingdom is set up, the, the, the only thing that will be allowed to exist in the kingdom of God will be all that's consistent with the perfect love of the triune God. And everything that we've done in our life that's motivated by, by that love stays with us. Everything that's not, even if it looks really religious, even if it looks very impressive, it's burned up. And it will be exposed on that day as being motivated by something other than love. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can have the gift of tongues and you can prophesy, you can have all knowledge, you can understand all mysteries, you know, you can do great deeds, uh, you can give your body to be burned, you can do all this stuff, but if you don't have love, it's altogether worthless. Why? Because it's going to get burned up. Only what is absolutely consistent with the kingdom of God will get in, go into the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I sometimes think about uh, the, the way the Bible talks about believers in, in these terms. This is an analogy. We are, the, the goal of everyone is to be a mirror of God. And when we go through this purging fire, and again, it's a metaphor. We don't take this literally, but there's some kind of process by which God burns away everything that's inconsistent with his will and refines that mirror. When we come out of this, we're all mirrors that reflect God perfectly. Um, that, that, that's our, our primary job throughout eternity. But the Bible talks about rewards and punishments and stuff, even for believers, the judgment seat of Christ in Romans 14.10. And I take that to be something like this. All mirrors will experience fullness in heaven. There'll be a fullness of joy. But not all mirrors will be the same size. And this is the period of time, so far as, as God makes any clear declaration about it. There may be some growth in, in heaven and chances to expand or whatever, but, but the, what he tells us is that this is the time whereby we, with the, with the intensity of an Olympic athlete, are to be uh, bringing our lives into conformity with the love of Jesus Christ. And we're expanding our capacity to receive and to have the love of God flowing in us and, and, and through us. Now, what I want to say here is this. This is now moving into the new material. The decisive variable, the, the crucial variable that both begins or, or settles our probationary status with God, whether we're open or closed to God, but also continues the process by which we grow. The decisive variable, the decisive question I might say is this. Are you dead yet? Have you died as Dallas Willard says in his book, Renovations of the Heart. And by the way, I'm using a number of books as I'm putting this together, but the one I'm finding most valuable is Dallas Willard's uh, Renovation of the Heart. You might want to pick that up at Northwestern. Maybe Bill has a copy of it in our bookstore, I don't know, or Amazon.com. But, but I'm kind of uh, following some of his thought. And everything Dallas Willard says is worth reading five times, so I encourage you to get that book. But as he says, here is this. The linchpin of Christian growth. It begins it and it continues it is death to self, dying to self. If you lose your life, then you'll find it. Jesus says in John 12 that unless a seed is planted in the ground, it cannot bear fruit. The decisive thing is death to self. Now what, what self is he talking about? The self he's talking about is that self that I mentioned two weeks ago that's on the road to death. This is the self-enthroned self. The self that put itself in the middle of the garden. The self that eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The self that therefore has been uh, blocked off from the tree of life. It is that self, that false self, because it's not the kind of self that God intended it to be. It's the self that puts itself in the center of the universe. And everything revolves around you. And you see the world in terms of what it can do for you. Uh, and you feed off of the world. This is the self that is uh, addicted to idolatry. 
Because an idol is anything we use in our life that only God, that's only appropriate for God. But the false self blocked out from God is a self that is constantly trying to get worth and get value and get significance and get meaning from all the things in your environment. What you own, what you acquire, how you look, what people think, what you achieve, how religious you are. Idols all over the place. This is a false self. It's not the self that God intended uh, you to be. And what, what, what the Lord is saying is that that false self has got to die. That self that is the center of the universe, the Lord of, 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 of its own existence, the captain of its own ship, the master of its own destiny, that self has got to die. There's no negotiating with it. Okay, what does that mean, that it's got to die? Let me say a couple things that I'm sure it doesn't mean. First of all, it doesn't mean, this is how it's taken in some circles, or it has been at least in, in church history, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to loathe yourself. I call this maggot theology. That you're supposed to, uh, you know, uh, it's somehow pious to go around saying, I am, I am so lowly, I am so miserable, I am, I am a maggot, I am a worm, I am a scum, I am loathsome to God. Jonathan Edwards says, he dangles you like a loathsome spider d- d- from a, uh, hanging from a spider web over the fire. You know, uh, well, so I am a dangling spider. I, I can do nothing good. I am altogether sinful. There's no good found in me. You know, and, and, and we think we're glorifying God when we talk that way. And it is true that apart from God, you're lost. Apart from God, you're dead in sin. But at the same time, the Bible says you're made in the image of God. Uh, you can't be all that bad. Uh, I mean, you're, you're lost, but, but, but there's something, be- what makes sin tragic is that you're created for greatness. And, and so as you are created, there's something beautiful there. You can't be that, that worthless if Jesus Christ died for you. He was willing to pay the ultimate price for you. You've got incredible worth. Now, maybe you don't know that. Maybe you're walking on that. Maybe you're trashing that. But the fact is that as a being created by God, as a, as a piece of work that God created, uh, you, there's something splendidly, infinitely worthwhile about you. True, you're lost. But don't think yourself a... There's nothing wrong with, uh, with liking the fact that God created you a certain way. Sometimes people just can't take compliments or they can't feel good about something they can do well. No, God gave you that ability. Feel good about that. Don't get life from it, but you can feel good about that. But that's the kind of the self-denial. Dying to self means you've got to think of yourself as being as bad as possible. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Another way that this thing kind of get twisted, it can sometimes get twisted is this. Uh, there's another strand of theology in the Western tradition, and it's, 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 it's prevalent in some circles today, where you have a, a kind of uh, this dying to self or, or denying yourself is taken to mean kind of this, um, well, if it's fun, it must be wrong. If it's pleasurable, you should feel guilty. If you're enjoying it, you must be carnal kind of theology. See what I'm saying? It's like, uh, it's, a wor- it's kind of a morbid, world-negating theology where, where you, you just you try to give up stuff for the sake of giving it up, and then you feel kind of righteous about it. And, and, and the folks who are in this, you know, so, so the, there's various things that they enjoy, but, but they're going to give them up because they're going to die to themselves, and they're not going to enjoy anything. The, you know, the more miserable you are, the more righteous you are, and, and you look at other people who are enjoying those things. The typical, the typical ones are, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't go to movies, and the list goes on. And, and, and you give up those things, and you feel righteous for that because you are dying to self, and all those other people who are enjoying those things, well, that just makes you more miserable, so you stand in judgment over them, and this is what is supposed to count as dying to self. And I submit to you that that's not dying to self at all. 
For one thing, the Bible is not world negating. God is not anti-fun, anti-joy, anti-pleasure. In fact, he created that stuff. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6 that he gave us all these things for our enjoyment. And it says in, 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 uh, creation, or in uh, Genesis 1, creation 1, in Genesis 1, that, uh, um, that, that the world was good. God, he's not against parties. He's not against fun. He's not against enjoying the world. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding where he changed water into wine. God's not anti-fun. But see, the issue is not whether you affirm the world or not. The issue is what is the perspective that you have as you affirm the world. And that's what Jesus is, 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 is going after. The other thing you've got to notice about this world-negating morbid theology is that it, the, the self, that false self, is still totally enthroned. Uh, you are still captain of your own ship, master of your own fate. You're still calling all the shots. You haven't died at all. You just found a new technique, a new strategy uh, for, for getting religious life. You're still feeding yourself with an idol. It's a religious idol. In fact, Jesus says it's the most tenacious of, of, of all idols because it looks so good. People are, are hesitant to give it up. When Jesus says that we must die to ourselves, he's not talking about a particular act, a particular thing, or, or anything like that. What he's saying is far, far, far more radical than that. He is saying that the old way of doing life has got to go. The old way that you used to think about yourself has got to go. Uh, that, that self that feeds off of idols has got to go. The self that worries about uh, public opinion too much and what do people think. That self that's fishing for compliments and overly wounded by insults, that self has got to die. That self that, that feeds itself on its achievements and on its worth and on its status and what you acquire and all of that, that's got to die. There's no negotiating with it. There's, there's no, no, no playing with it. It's got to be crucified. If you're going to enter into eternal life, that self has got to go. What Jesus is saying is infinitely more radical than simply give up this or that and the other thing. Here's ten things to give up and five things I want you. No, he's talking about an entire frame of mind, that old self. It's got to die. It's got, friends, you got to die. Today is a good day to die, don't you think? Now, okay, so far it sounds like I'm enthusiastically talking about a funeral. But I got some good news for you, all right? It doesn't end there. Here's the good news. The Bible says that if you're willing to die, you're going to live. If you lose your life, you're going to find it. If you're willing to die, you're really going to live. If you sell all that you have, there really is a treasure that you can purchase. In other words, it's not for nothing that Jesus says in the most... Out of love, he confronts us between the eyes because it's good for us. This, this old self, false self, enthroned self is, is keeping us from real self, from the true self, from the self that's defined by God. And so he confronts us in radical terms. And he says, count the cost. Now look at when you count the cost, a lot of times that gets spun in this morbid theology kind of mode. Like, oh, I'm counting the cost. I must give it up. Woe is me. Oh, I've sacrificed so much. Behold my righteousness. And I'm counting the cost. But see, as Dallas Willard says in his book, Renovations of the Heart, when you count the cost, you don't just, you, you, you look at, at, at what you got to give up, true. But you also ask, why would I give that up? And you decide whether or not it's wor worth it. What do you gain in the whole thing? So when you count the cost, you say, is this worth that? That's what you're doing. And the Bible's declaration is that it's worth it. And not just by a little bit. It's worth it by a lot. It's worth it by an infinite amount. 
In fact, if we're looking at this situation appropriately, if, if we're not looking at it in terms of the flesh, because the flesh hates everything I'm saying right now, because we like our old stuff. The flesh hates us, but your spirit is saying yes to it. Follow your spirit. Ignore the flesh. Crucify that flesh right now. If you're looking at this through spiritual eyes, what you'll see is that there ought to be joy. There ought to be joy in this proclamation of crucifying the self. Why? Because there's a treasure you get when you do it. Can you imagine the guy who found this treasure? Let's say it was worth 10,000 times everything he owned. He finds this treasure. He buries it in the field. And now he's going to go sell everything that he has in order to get that field. Can you imagine being depressed about this? Oh, I found a treasure that's 10,000 times more valuable than everything I own. Now I've got to get rid of everything I own. No! I, there maybe would be a little bit of pain because it's hard to say goodbye to that old house and hard to say you know, goodbye to, to the apple cart that you owned and, and maybe to the clothes that you had because he sells, he sells all. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to buy a field. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> you know, I, he sold everything. You know, I, there was probably some, there was sacrifice there. It, he felt the sacrifice. But at the same time, as he looked at the treasure, as he looked at the treasure, he was saying to himself, Oh, this is worth it. This is a steal. This is a radical deal. So the Bible says it was out of joy that he did this. So also, as we look at the treasure, yes, you know what? This costs you everything. If you don't realize that it costs you everything, you haven't, you haven't really heard or haven't really understood the true gospel. The, the, the gauntlet is thrown, down, is thrown down. This is going to cost you that old life, that false self. You've got to dethrone yourself. There's a radically new way of living here. But see, if you keep your eye on the prize, on the treasure, you see that it is worth it. It is a thousand times worth it. It is ten thousand. It is a million. It is a trillion gazillion times worth it. Amen? Amen. Because the treasure, the treasure is, the treasure is what you were looking for with that false self anyways. You were scraping around for a morsel of worth based on what someone says about you or what you could do or, you know, you know what you could achieve and a little bit of pleasure and whatever. You're scraping for morsels, but this is the meal. All right? This is the real thing. All, everything you've ever desired, every dream that you've had, every longing you've had, every thirst that, 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 that your uh, soul's ever experienced, it really has been for this. The devil just lied to you and said you could find it out there. But as a matter of fact, this is the real thing. You've got to die to that to get this. But man, is this worth it. This, this is the treasure that is life itself, folks. If you lose your life, that old life, you'll find this new life. The treasure is life because the treasure is Jesus Christ. And, and by life, I'm not talking biological life. I'm talking real life. I'm talking the life of the kingdom. This is the life that, that, that you've always been longing for. This is, this is abundant life, the Bible says. It is full life. It is rich life. It is life with purpose. It is life with meaning. It is life with significance. It's more than conquering life. Amen. This treasure, this treasure is hallelujah. Oh, it's, just, it's good to think about the treasure because it makes the crucifying of the self easier. Think about this treasure. This treasure opens up the love, what you've been hungry for, the perfect love of God flowing to you, flowing in you, flowing through you. When I found this treasure, I found that there's a capacity as I crucify myself. There's a capacity to love people like I've never loved people. And there's a joy that I've never had. The Bible says it's a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And there's a peace that passes all understanding. This treasure is worth it. A thousand million gazillion times worth it. Crucify yourself. It costs you everything, but it's worth everything because what you get back is more than everything. 
this, this treasure, this treasure makes you righteous. It fills you with the spirit of God. It makes you more than a conqueror. With this treasure, you're free from condemnation. You're free from guilt. You're free from shame. You're free from the fear of death. You're free from the fear of hell. You're opened up to God. His spirit flows through you. You're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. It is worth it. A thousand million gazillion times over, it is worth it. This is a treasure of great price. Think about this treasure. Dwell on this treasure. The treasure is nothing other than Jesus Christ. Nothing other than Jesus Christ. And that old self, that old, that old pathetic, I'm the center of the universe, I can meet my own needs self, it wasn't working for you anyways, was it? Yeah, think about it. You know, what, what did it have going for it? You know, you scrape by trying to get a morsel of worth, being offended at this, striving for that, being anxious about the other thing, worrying about this, trying to get your own security, trying to, trying to find your own significance, scraping for a morsel of food. Uh, it, it, it wasn't working for you. It was empty. It was futile. It, it, that's not life. That's, that, that's biological survival, but that's not life. That old self, that old pathetic, self-centered, narcissistic, I'm, I'm Lord of my own life self, it, it's nothing but frustration. Really, every frustration, every worry, all of that comes because of that old self. Get rid of it. Lose it. It was going to die anyways. You might as well kill it now. Put it out of its misery. Amen? And when you do that, when you're willing to lose your life, but see, it's radical, that whole old way of thinking, that old, the old way of doing existence has got to go. And it's only when we do that. You know, it, it, we, we, we sing the song, I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my weakness. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. That's what we're talking about here. Tell you what, why don't you get rid of that pathetic carcass and find real life. Lay it down for the joy of the Lord. Don't negotiate with it. Don't try to dress it up. Don't play with it anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Kill it. Crucify it. And move on. We ought to, if we're thinking rightly, it's not so much the cost of discipleship we should talk about. We should call, talk about the cost of non-discipleship. You want a bad deal, don't do what I'm telling you to do right now. Non-discipleship costs you everything. Here's what Dallas Willard says. Someone sent me this quote, had no idea what I was going to preach on, but sent me this quote two days ago. Uh, It's right from Innovation of the Heart, I believe. Uh, Dallas Willard says, Non-discipleship costs us abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout with love. That's what it costs you. You're going to forsake faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Man, it's a wonderful thing to have. What a terrible thing to lose. Hopefulness that stands firm even in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is good and withstand the powers of evil. That's what non-discipleship costs you. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus came to bring. So count the cost. But I'm telling you, make sure you include the gain of what happens when you crucify yourself. Let me conclude with two, two final words about this. Number one, you're not buying the treasure by crucifying yourself. It's not like you can hear say, okay, you know, like a works righteousness thing. I've purchased eternal life by crucifying myself. This isn't a quid pro quo arrangement here, okay? You can't buy the treasure. You can only receive it as an unmerited gift. It only can happen, be given to you free. What we're doing is simply crucifying that, that self, that old false self that didn't want the treasure. And now you're putting yourself in a position where you'll receive it for free. But you're not purchasing it. You're not earning it or anything like that. You're just getting rid of that stupid self that says, I don't want the treasure. I'll do it on my own. The second thing is this. And I'll be talking more about this next week. I actually was planning on preaching on this this weekend, but I I will not have time. Uh, The anointing has been flowing too thickly. Uh, But uh, 
This isn't a once and for all deal. Now it starts as a once and for all thing. You stand up, you say, you know what? I'm willing to die. I, 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 I'm just going to get rid of that old pathetic false self where I'm living my own life, Lord of my own life, meeting my own needs. I'm going to get rid of that thing. And that's, that, that's, what, that, that's what resolves the probationary period. You have a heart that's open to God. You're saying yes to his kingdom. But growth happens as we continue to do that. Paul says, I die daily. 1 Corinthians 15. I die daily. You see, it needs to happen over and over again because our old self, that false way of thinking and feeling and interacting with the world, it has a momentum of its own. You know the old phrase? We've talked about it before. Sow a, sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a, sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Well, there's been a lot of thoughts sown and a lot of deeds have been sown and a lot of habits have been cultivated with that old self. So we need to continually, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, put off the old and put on the new. It's like a person who's, who's uh, you know, been abusing alcohol and they want to quit. Well, you, you make a decision and you take a stand, but that doesn't mean that, that now it's free sailing. Every day you've got to make that decision. Some of you know that firsthand. And, and there's always that habit of thinking, saying, gosh, it'd be nice to have a drink right now. I could escape pain by having a drink right now. I could feel so confident if only I had a drink right now. I could feel much more comfortable if I had a drink right now. And what the person needs to say is, wait a minute, that's old self, that's a lie. I forgot, I'm a new self. I, I, I'm, I, I'm no longer that self that escapes life through drinking. So also, Christian formation is a process of sowing a seed Reap, uh, sowing, sowing a thought, reaping a deed, sowing a deed, reaping a habit, sowing a habit, reaping a character, sowing a character, reaping a destiny. It starts very, very intentionally, and it takes, you need, you need the intensity of an Olympic athlete, as Paul says we must have in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But you go on like that. You crucify yourself daily. I'll be talking more about that in, in, uh, in uh, uh, the weeks to come. Let me ask, uh, end with, with this question. Would you close your eyes and pray? I want to ask two questions here. First of all, to those who have not resolved their probationary period. You maybe didn't know it, but God, this whole, this whole period of, of life, what we call history, is a probationary epic. And God's waiting for you, not just waiting, but longing for you to choose him. Will you surrender your life to him or not? I'm not doing a soft sell here. I'm putting all the cards on the table just like Jesus did. It means you've got to die. Your old way of doing existence is going to come to an end. The pathetic ways you've been getting life, you've got to give up. Are you willing to do that? That's what the Bible says calls repentance. Are you willing to turn from that and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and enthrone Him as the center of your life rather than you? And if there's anybody here who's not resolved that probationary period, I'd like you just to raise your hand. And, 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 and we're going to pray with you here. It starts with a prayer, a declaration. Anybody here at all who's never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, just raise your hand really high so I can see. I want to give everyone a chance to do this. Raise your hand nice, uh, nice and high. Holy Spirit, be moving here. Saints of God, be praying. Anybody who needs to surrender their life to Jesus Christ, and you're saying, you know what? I'm tired of that false self. I'm willing to crucify it. The Bible says that's what begins the journey to the road of life. The road to death ends in death. The road to life begins in death and ends with life. Okay, I want to I trust that everybody here is, a, is an apprentice, is a disciple of uh, Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're just not ready here yet. Um, I would encourage you to, oh, there's a person over there. Wonderful, wonderful. I see that hand. 
Anybody else? Amen. There's another person there. Praise God. I sometimes rush things a little too much. Holy Spirit, be moving. Anybody else? Can we turn up the lights a little bit uh, uh, higher? Because I, I have trouble seeing. If, uh... Okay, the, those who raised your hand, I, I want to I, I lead you in a prayer right now, okay? And we're going to join with you because you're part of the body of Christ in praying this prayer. And so pray from the depths of your heart, heart as you would a wedding vow. It's, it's uh, Lord Jesus, I confess that I have been Lord of my own life. I've tried to be captain of my own ship, master of my own fate. But I now realize that you are Lord, rightful owner of my life, and I surrender myself to you. I turn from my old ways, and I open myself up to you. Forgive me my sin, and dwell in me, and help me live for you the rest of my life. I surrender everything over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. That's how it begins. Now, those who, uh, uh, the, there's two who raised their hands. I want to encourage you at the end of the service to come over here. And a person has some literature that will help you. You've now signed up to being an apprentice of Jesus Christ. Uh, they'll help you uh, see what the first steps are in going through with that. The question I want to leave with all believers is this, and I, I want to have a prayer for all of us as well. Are there areas in your, of your life where that old self is still hanging on? I want you to right now, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to show you one of those areas. And this week, commit to letting the Lord help you crucify that old self. Die daily. Pray with me here. Lord, will you just reveal to us the area of our life where the true self, new self in Christ Jesus is not being manifested because that old carcass, false self is suppressing it. Father, show each one of us an area, because we've all got them, an area, Lord God, that you would like to work on. And help us this week die to that area, to put her off, to put it behind us, and always be reminding ourselves about where our true source of life comes, what our true identity is in you. And free us, Lord. Free us, Lord God, that we can be builders who have a life that goes through the fire rather than is burned up by the fire. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, would the prayer team come forward? If you're here and have any need that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward, spend some time in prayer. Otherwise, go out, be radical, self-denying disciples of the Most High God. Amen.